Hello, everybody. Move a little closer to the mic here. It is Tim. It's been a while. I'm not, I don't remember. I have to be kind of close to the mic uh, for people to hear me. But like I said, it's been a while. This is the honor roll. I have not been able to do this in the last couple of weeks. Life, work, my day job. My day job has sucked, folks. I have not had enough time to watch horror movies until recently, and that's a huge problem. Um, for someone who does a horror movie podcast. But I have been watching some horror movies. You don't want to hear me complain about my day job. You want to hear me talk about horror movies, kind of, uh, because I have some other stuff I want to talk about here, including an episode of Married with Children I watch. We'll get to that later. But this is the honor roll. This is where I talk about five movies, and the ones I really like, I take out and I put on my honor roll and then in a couple weeks here I will be picking my top 10 movies my top 10 horror movies from that list of films that I have selected and set aside as ones that I really liked this past year and we are getting to the end of it so I'm going to do this one I have a plan to do another one of these next week to record another one of these movies next week I've already watched a couple movies for that, including Resurrection and Crimes of the Future, the new Cronenberg movie, kind of a follow-up, an epilogue to our Summer of Cronenberg that Willie and I did this past summer that exhausted us uh, from doing movies. We had to take a break from watching movies for a little bit because the Cronenberg stuff was just so, it, it was so dark and exhausting. But anyway, let's talk about five new horror movies that aren't Crimes of the Future, and let's start with a big one, Barbarian. This has been out, and I full disclosure here, it's been a bit since I watched this one, so you're not going to get into a lot of in-depth analysis here on this film, um, not that you ever would anyway from me, but also, I'm not going to spoil it, and I'm going to do my best to dance around spoilers. What I want to talk about, though, is there was an interaction between a well-known and very good a, a, a vlogger, blogger, um, horror journalist that I really, really like. So I'm not bashing him here, but there was an interaction on Twitter between that vlogger and the director of this film, Zach Kreger, who was from, I believe, The Whitest Kids You Know? Was that him? Um, anyway, I think I might be getting them mixed up. I, he's from a sketch comedy crew. He has a background in comedy, the director, Zach Kreger. But anyway, the... The vlogger tweeted out, because this film takes place in Detroit, in the city of Detroit, he tweeted out how nice it would be if maybe, it, I believe he's referring to Don't Breathe as well as being another one along lines of this, in a lot of movies set in Detroit, maybe it would be a nice change of pace if every movie that was filmed in Detroit didn't make it look like some war-torn country. Which, I mean, I guess a fair point. Uh, but then the director kind of hit back and said, well, this was filmed in Brightmore. Most of this was filmed in Brightmore. And the vlogger went, oh, cool, man. Um, so it was it was a funny interaction for me because I lurk at all times. And uh, it's a lesson for everyone. Never tweet, ever. Just stop. Anyway, Brightmore is a neighborhood in the city of Detroit. It's on the northwest border of the city of Detroit. And... Go on YouTube, type in Brightmore, Detroit, Brighthood, Brightmore Neighborhood, Detroit, and you'll see that there are areas that aren't exactly, I'm trying to think of a very nice place. I, I don't know. Uh, 
the French Riviera. <laughs> First one that came to my head. Bryn Mawr is not the French River area, Riviera. Um, since 1970, so here's some background on where they filmed a lot of this movie, and then I'll get to how it plays in to the plot without spoiling of Barbarian. Since 1970, Brightmore, um, the pop- population has declined from 26,000 to 9,000 residents, um, a 64% population loss. So there are a number of different reasons for this decline. There are a couple redlining, white flight, um, two of the major ones. In 1939, talk about redlining here. Many parts of Detroit were what they called redline. It was a federal policy that barred lending in areas the government deemed quote unquote risky. This specifically targeted residents of color or were even near residents of color, making them ineligible for government housing investments. And a lot of this is taken from an article called How Histories, Neighborhood Violence and Privilege Shape Street Life Insights Brightmore. Uh, type that in Google, you'll find the article. <laughs> it's a Harvard article. So if any of these facts are wrong, blame the morons at Harvard. But anyway, Redline, um, Brightmore was redlined due to, and this is the government appraisers who said this, and this is their words, poor transportation, no utilities, few sewers, shacks, undeveloped subdivisions, and undivided land. Existing development of very poor character is what they said. So what they did around this time is they put in low-cost housing development of 2,150 units. So it became, Brightmore became kind of an area for low housing back in the 20s and 30s. This housing discrimination kind of continued through the 40s, 50s, and 60s until the civil rights movement, of course, of the 60s kind of flipped everything on its head, and specifically the Detroit riots of 67 and 68. So what you had was a lot of people leaving, um, leaving the city, leaving Brightmore after the riots. They fled. And that's when you see this, the, after the first summer, it was, I think, 80,000 or 67,000. And then the following summer it was 80,000. So that's where you get in what is referred to kind of like the white flight or just the flight out of the city and into the suburbs over the next decades, those houses were abandoned. And that's when you saw a lot of, there was, there was no money coming in. That's when you saw the neighborhood decline, public and private disinvestments, growing poverty, uh, residents witnessed, and experienced extreme neighborhood violence, including arsons, shootings, violent home invasions. This is from that article. This is with a 64-year-old residence, resident who had experienced, she said she had experienced five break-ins in her Brightmore home over the last 25 years. And she says, yeah, in the late 80s, drug dealers came in, they tore up, burned down houses. People wouldn't let them in. They'd burn their houses up, just go crazy. People were scared. They weren't coming out of their houses. People started locking their doors more very edgy about somebody knocking on the door. And then she quote, closes the quote with, remember, this is Brightmore. Anything can and will happen. So while it's seen high neighborhood violence, in recent years, the crime rates actually have shown a steep decrease. Violent crime has declined by 45%, property crime by 55% um, in the last, this was 2009 to 2016, so it's a little older. I don't know what it's like the last couple of years, but there was also some gentrification in recent years because you could get a house, you can get a home there for as little as 500 bucks. So this idea that anything can happen, it's actually become less over the course of years, but it's still people kind of dealing like this resident says, kind of dealing with that kind of that hysteria, that kind of trauma of the past years uh, moving forward. So everybody's on edge. They're very vigilant. 
and all that. So I'm bringing all this up as a background because while Barbarian isn't specifically about that neighborhood, it is. And it's about cities and neighborhoods in the United States that have gone through similar transformations. And I think part of the reason why and I'm, I live in the Detroit area, but so, but part of the reason why I think Detroit, the Detroit area is so touchy when it comes to this stuff is because of the past, but also because this is not the only city in America that it's had to go through this. Um, but what Barbarian does is it uses all of what I just went over as kind of like a backdrop, especially that quote, anything can happen in Brightmore. Um, it knows what the audience is expecting when they see the location, when they see the house, when they see who is living in the house or staying in the house. Um, and it's not just because of the neighborhood. It's because it's a horror movie and it plays with the expectations of what a horror audience expects from a horror, horror movie. Audiences are pretty savvy now. Horror, audi- horror audiences in general have seen it all. They know the beats. When you watch this movie, you are definitely expecting certain characters to act a certain way, specifically in the first half of the movie. This movie plays with those expectations and takes you on a ride in a completely different area. Era, area. And it does so about halfway through the movie. It's a complete and total shift. Um, it's got a classic horror movie setup, and it plays with that, but it twists it. And it does so with the characters as well. But that's what this is what Barbarian is about at its core, which is... That tension between the past and the present colliding, these people moving into a place that has gone through all of this, all of what we just talked about in the last like 50, 60 years, and now they're moving in kind of like the gentrification. This is a, this is a gentrification horror movie. Um, and I, it fits alongside with, um, the new Candyman as well in that, in that way. But it's about the traditional ways and the fears of the past and the fears of, horror filmmaking in the past using that to tell the story about the present and it does so great um i love this movie this is another movie in a line of films with a director known for comedy bobcat goldwaith has done a uh, couple jordan peele of course kevin smith i think his best recent movie has been a horror movie in red state and um david gordon green is another one but yeah zach kreger joins the list i am definitely going to put barbarian on the honor roll it's great. I hope I did not spoil anything for anybody. It tried to be as vague as possible, uh, but you can check it out. I think it's on like HBO. Uh, check it out before they remove it, like they do with everything else on that service. All right, what are we talking about next here? We are talking about Torn Hearts. This is, oops, knocking over stuff on my desk. This is directed by Brie Grant. I like Brie Grant. A lot. She was in Dexter Heroes. I remember her from Friday Night Lights as an actress. She's also done some really interesting genre work lately. Um, Lucky was a movie she was in. It was a lot of fun. It's on Shudder. And I really like The Stylist as well. She was in that. Very good in that. But she has, I believe The Stylist may have made my honor roll last year. It was like a late watch, but I really dug it. She's transitioned over to directing recently as well. She wrote and directed a movie called 12 Hour Shift, which I may have talked about last year. I can't remember. But it stars Angela Bettis, David Arquette. It's very similar in tone to something like May and um, Torn Hearts a little bit. It's kind of a deranged, dark horror comedy. This one flirts with that as well. Uh, This is like a dark horror version of that show Nashville that was on ABC for a while. That also starred someone from Friday Night Lights. Um, This has a very good cast, led by the fantastic... Katie Seagal from Married with Children. Married with Children was a show that I watched a lot as a youth. I have not revisited it 
until this past week I watched an episode. It's been a long time. Like, they used to show it on, like, TBS at, like, 6 in the morning uh, a while back. But I don't I don't think it's on anymore. I haven't watched it. It's on Peacock now if anybody is looking for a Married with Children fix. And I got mine today. I watched a late-era episode of Married with Children that's co-starred, that guest-starred Robert England in the crowd. So they use, like, like a canned uh, audience reactions, laugh tracks and stuff on Married with Children. But what I remember mostly, Robert England gets a nice ovation. He gets like, they give him like the applause. It's like a, uh, I, like half the people recognize him. The other half are turning to the person and they're like, oh, that's Freddy Krueger. They're like, oh, Freddy Krueger uh, reaction. What I remember most about Married with Children, the show was the audience reactions. Like when Christina Applegate would appear on the show, it became, it's like a, you're, like in a Super Bowl, if your team scored a touchdown, it was like that. Just a complete explosion of happiness and joy and hooting and hollering. An incredibly, I'm just going to come on and say an incredibly horny audience. And then if I remembered correctly, and anybody can correct me if I'm wrong, but Bud Bundy, as they got later into the seasons, like I don't know if Bud threw a fit behind the scenes, uh, David Faustino, the actor, but like his reactions uh, began to rival when he grew the goatee, began to rival Christina Applegates, if I recall, with the audience. Someone can correct me if I'm wrong. I'll ignore it and just go with what's in my head. Anyway, I watched this episode. It's called Damn Bundies. It's like the, it's one of the final Married with Children episodes. And you can tell, like, they're kind of, the actors, actresses, I don't want to say they're checked out, but um, Ed O'Neill is, L. Bundy is, he's ready to move on to, um, uh, Modern Family, I think, probably came right after this, not too long ago. He took a break in between. But this is like, so Al makes a pact with the devil in this, and Robert England is the devil. Because Al, remember, he's like the football player. Um, anybody who's like under a certain age is going, what the hell is he talking about? He he wants he, he was a big-time football player at Polk High. Um, he always wanted to play for the Chicago Bears. And so in exchange for his soul, uh, Robert Englund, the devil, says, okay, you can play with the Bears, um, and he takes them to a Super Bowl. This has uh, big-time guest stars, not only Robert Englund, but three Chicago Bears from the time, Eric Kramer, uh, Raymond Harris, Ohio State guy, Curtis Conway, uh, all Chicago Bear players at the time. Also, James Brown, not the singer, but James Brown, the NFL host, the NFL analyst, who was hosting Fox. NFL Sundays at the time, but England, Robert England, he plays the devil. And like during these fantasy sequences, or I don't know if they're real, they're meant to be real. It's married with children, a big cartoon at the time, but he's like in the crowd as a vendor serving like deviled eggs because he's Satan. He's the devil. Uh, he really gets to ham it up in this one. He is the, like, this is late era, Robert England, Freddy Krueger um, on full display. So Al ends up, uh, he ends up going to hell when he dies um but he loves it he loves being in hell because he gets pigs in a blanket he and he never has to see his family again he thinks it's heaven um but it all goes south for al bundy when his entire family dies and he has to spend eternity with eternity with them and the darcy's his neighbors and he says oh he yeah he says he wants his soul back and there's a very topical joke that ended up being very topical not so much at the time but he goes i want my soul back and then robert england the devil goes i want my soul back that's all i hear from you in tiger woods 
So anyway, he challenges the devil, Robert Englund, to a game of football. He beats him. He gets, It's like the devil went down to Georgia, basically, but a Married with Children episode. Anyway, I think this is like uh, one of the last episodes of the show. And boy, it goes out with a bang. Very popular show at the time. Oh, Easter egg for any uh, Freddy Krueger fans. They make a Tom Arnold joke in this one. So there you go. Back to the movie, Torn Hearts. I didn't... I'm not talking about it very much because I, I didn't love this one, unfortunately. I think the majority of the problems with this movie are like kind of on a script level. So it goes the slow burn approach, but instead of drawing you in with the mystery, it f- ends up, which ends up being pretty obvious. Anyway, it makes the whole thing feel like my least favorite kind of horror movie, which is a horror movie that doesn't actually want to be a horror movie. Uh, the slow burn doesn't really deliver either. The third act feels abrupt. Uh, this one, uh, Torn Hearts was not for me, not on the honor roll. All right, let's keep things moving here with bodies, bodies, bodies hit the floor. This is an A24 movie. It's directed by Helena Ryan. She's a Dutch actress, and I butchered that, I'm sure. She's a Dutch at- actress and director. She was in Black Book, the Verhoeven movie. Uh, I believe she was also in the Tom Cruise movie with Brian Singer, the director. Um, that's a sca- Valkyrie. Uh, this is written by Sarah DeLapp and Kristen Ropenian. Uh, they are a duo... I believe. No, Kristen Ropenian did the story. That's right. Uh, they're both younger writers. This is starring the, de- the divisive Pete Davidson from SNL. I have no real opinion on Pete Davidson. A lot of people do, though, and they love to share it. Uh, and a cast of young, just people that are way younger than me, who I didn't recognize, but do a fantastic job. Uh, but they made me feel very old. What bodies, bodies, bodies does the best in my opinion is capture the horror the sheer horror of going to a party and only knowing like one or two people the people you are with because what happens eventually is the people you are with are going to go mingle with the people you don't know who's maybe whose house it is because they know them and you are left alone with people that you do not know uh standing around and drinking. Uh, And there's nothing more terrifying than that. When I was younger, there was a, uh, I went over to somebody's house. This is my horror story. It was kind of like an apartment. It was like a duplex. And on the second story, we went up there and it was kind of a get together party, a small party. Not, um, I guess not dissimilar to the one in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. We didn't play any games or uh, vlog it, but is it even called vlogging anymore? TikTok it. Um, anyway, so we get there and who I was with, like went to the other room there doing whatever. And I was out there and I noticed, I think I've told the story in the podcast before I noticed in like the corner of the apartment, uh, there was a, a tank, like an aquarium tank and it didn't have any water in it. And like, it clicked with me. I'm like, Oh, there's a snake in there. And then I heard someone say, Oh, the snake is out. We don't know where it is. Uh, we haven't seen it in like a day. So the snake was just out. I don't know where it is. I don't know if it was running through the streets of the town I was in or if it was just in the apartment with me. But the entire time I was sitting there waiting for whoever I was with to get out of the room to stop doing whatever it was they were doing in there. So I didn't get strangled by a python. And I was just terrified the entire time while everybody just kind of like who lived there just kind of went, well, I guess the snake will come back when it's hungry. We feed it a mouse. Uh, anyway. There you go. This movie does a great job 
of capturing that. It's also a straight up comedy. It's almost Coen Brothers esque in how much it despises the characters. At least I thought so. Um, it's a movie about bored rich kids. It's like a Gen Z version of Carpenters, the thing where nobody trusts anyone. And believe me, I'm sure the thing is the first one that comes to mind. I'm sure there are many more. Uh, movies out there whatever uh some there's some really funny lines in this movie based around like topical buzzwords these kids are like terminally online and the movie knows this but they're throwing out stuff they're just like saying like you're gaslighting me um and like gaslighting is just lying right uh and they'd say like you're so toxic don't trigger me uh you're silencing me you're devoid of empathy <laughs> um don't be so ableist like they're screaming these things at each other and the entire time like i'm like uh, first thought that goes in my head is like, nobody talks like this, but then I realize a lot of people talk like this. So they just scream at each other. Like they're on Twitter. Um, specifically people like this, the kids like this who are online all the time, uh, showing TikToks, grumpy old man here. There's also a scene in here where one character tells the, another character who's a podcaster that, uh, she hate listens to her podcast and the, other character gets very sad because they do a lot of hard work. There are a lot of hard work goes into that. So really hit me hard <laughs> too close to home. I think it's making fun of these characters the entire time. This is more of a comedy. It was sold as a slasher movie. You can see why some people might, might not like the bait and switch. Remy similar to Halloween ends this year in some ways when it, it sold a completely different movie than what it actually was. I think this is a comedy. It's very funny. Um, it's got horror elements. But uh, I think it's making fun of these characters. It's written by a millennial. It's directed by a Gen Xer. I don't think it's saying, like, Gen Z is terrible. I think it's just saying that, like, every other generation, Gen Z is full of shit. Just like millennials and Gen Xers and boomers. Uh, this movie gets it. People are just full of shit in general. There you go. This one's on the honor roll. A lot of fun. Bodies, bodies, bodies. Check it out. Have a good time. Laugh. All-time great ending in this one. Uh, the final reveal chef's kiss up next we've got wendell and wild written by henry selick and jordan peele together uh directed by henry selick henry selick director screenwriter animator best known for his stop motion animation he didn't get a start there though out of college he he actually worked for disney uh he worked on movies like pete's dragon fox and the hound Henry Selleck also, for Wes Anderson fans, did the animated sequences in Life Aquatic. This, though, is his first movie since Coraline, which was 13 years ago. So, Henry Selleck. Let's do some Henry Selleck rankings real quick. Five feature-length movies. Let's start with number five. And we'll work our way up to what, I, what is my favorite Henry Selleck movie, because I've seen them all. This one, though, it's been a while. Monkey Bone is my number five Henry Selleck-directed picture. There are things I remember liking about this. I think tonally it's all over the place. It's written by Sam Hamm, who wrote Batman and Batman Returns. I'm going to be honest, I haven't seen this movie in about 20 years. It pro I, I feel like rewatching it. Um, if I can find it, it's probably streaming somewhere. I just remember it not being as funny as it seemed to want to be at times. It's just being weird tonally. Number four, I've got Wendell and Wild, and I'll get to that in a minute. Number three, James and the Giant Peach. This was actually my favorite Roald Dahl book as a kid. Um, 
I think visually this movie is tremendous, but it's it's this weird combination of a movie that feels slight and overlong at the same time. It's kind of it's kind of dull, but uh, definitely definitely one to check out for the visuals itself. My number two is actually Nightmare Before Christmas. I think it's a great movie. It's become something more than that, though. It's become kind of like almost like a lifestyle in a lot of ways. Um, I do like it quite a bit. I think this is Elfman. Danny Elfman at his highest point. I love the music in it. Um, it's a great collab- collaboration between Selick and Burton and Elfman. I dig Nightmare Before Christmas. Don't get me wrong. But my number one movie is Coraline. I think like Tim Burton, Henry Selick and Neil Gaiman uh, are an ideal match. This movie, Coraline is gloomy, like beautifully gloomy. And it's also kind of a creepy kids movie. I think it's a high point. I think it's his high point and a wonderful blend of adult and children animation. So children's animation. So there you go. As for Wendell and Wild, uh, it's okay. It's too busy. I think like a lot of Jordan Peele's work, it has a ton on its mind. And it's another movie where I wish, of his, where I wish it would have kind of focused on one of those things. It's a coming-of-age story about a young girl who loses her parents. It's also a story about the school-to-prison pipeline, and it's a critique of capitalism, and it's an rumination on death. And it's a whole bunch of other things on top of that. It gets bogged down, it gets convoluted. But it's definitely worth a watch. If you can find it on Netflix, uh, I'm kind of torn on the Netflix release and releases because I really don't think a lot of places were lining up to release this movie. Um, I like stop motion animation. It's weird. It's You see more of it uh, than like traditional hand-drawn animation. But yeah, Netflix kind of dumped it and it just kind of is just out there taken by the winds of Netflix. So if you search for Wendell and Wild. You'll find it. It's worth a watch. Uh, I like stop motion animation. This is easily behind Mad God, which was uh, Phil Tippett's stop motion animated movie that he had worked on forever. That is on Shudder now. Check that out for sure. That has got a very good chance of making my top 10. This movie does have a great soundtrack. Fishbone, the specials, TV on the radio, Living Color. Great soundtrack. A lot of black rock bands on the soundtrack. So there you go. Um, not on the honor roll, but definitely worth a watch. And finally, a movie that just hit VOD recently and I now have a chance to watch it. Pearl, the prequel to X, directed by one Mr. Ty West, written by one Mr. Ty West and Mia Goth. The background on this one is very interesting. This is, uh, they, while they were filming the movie, Ty West and Mia Goth, they wrote the screenplay. They wrote this screenplay mostly as kind of like an exercise to work out the backstory of Pearl. The spoilers, the vi- the villain of X. When X finished filming, um, they were in New Zealand and the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Production stayed, um, but it shut down. So his crew stayed in New Zealand and he pitched the idea to A24 pitched the idea of a prequel. They said, go for it. Um, he got help from the crew of Avatar Way of Water, who were in post-production on that, which is coming out soon, because um, they were in the New Zealand area. They made this film in secret, and they announced it with a trailer in X. So, a really cool backstory to this movie. This movie, like X, it's a movie about smut, pornography, it uses footage from an old stag movie. Gotta go back to calling them stag movies. Called A Grass Sandwich. 
or a free ride. One of the two titles. I did not watch this movie much. Uh, unlike the married with children episode I watched for an, in preparation. I did not watch a grass sandwich. I will let you look up what a grass sandwich is. Check out our urban dictionary. Uh, here's the plot of a grass sandwich. The old first, like one of the first pornography films, pornographic films. In 1915, that's anytime there's a new technology, people are going to want to watch people have sex. But here's the plot. Two ladies are hitchhiking. They are picked up by a male driver. They drink and then they have a three way, a menage a trois, if you will. Uh, So there you go. This movie is public domain. If you want to go ahead and watch it, it's out there. Anyway, Pearl. This movie, I liked it. I don't like it as much as X, though. Uh, a lot of my Ty West hangups kind of came flooding back to me while watching this. I think it's a little too cute by half. I think it started as an ex- acting exercise, and it feels like it. I think Goth is excellent. It works as a prequel character study. But what I meant by my hangups with Ty West, I'll go back to House of the Devil. I don't think the time period adds anything beyond kind of surface level, if that makes sense. Kind of like aesthetic qualities. And it's the same thing here with Pearl. It didn't do enough for me uh, in the time period of like 1918 when it's set. Honestly, I though I think I think what it comes down to, I just think an ensemble piece like X is more my speed. I also think X has more to say about kind of sexuality and human nature than this film does, which is mostly focused on repression and the effects of it. Once again, nothing, not taking any way, anything away from goth. It's a good movie, um, but I definitely prefer X and X is on my honor roll. Pearl is not. So there you go. That's it for this week. I think this bad boy is going to come in in under 30 minutes. Um, so let's get out of here. If you like this, you want to hear more patreon.com backslash Midwest Podnet. We're going to be doing some fun stuff on the main show. We're going to be talking about horror toys, just toys in general coming up. So very cool. Thank you seriously, everybody for listening. Uh, I will try to be back and have another one out before Christmas. And then that way that will be my cutoff. Christmas is my cutoff. And then new year's Eve and new year's day is when I'll try to get my top 10 and my superlatives out there for everybody. So Seriously, thank you, everybody, for listening. Take care out there. Bye.